Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players, so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use promo code RINGER with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit bonus that is earned over time as you play. Plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter contests. So remember, that's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. Today's episode is brought to you by Spotify Discover Weekly. Discover Weekly allows you to lose yourself every week in the thrill of new music discovery. Your Discover Weekly playlist is 30 songs that you didn't know you loved yet, and you get a brand new unique playlist every Monday personalized to your taste. Here's the cool thing about this. You get a brand new unique playlist every Monday personalized to your taste. You sit down at your desk on a Monday morning. What am I going to listen to? Don't worry. Spotify has you covered. It's a thrill. You just get to get lost. You just jump right into that Discover Weekly playlist. To see your Discover Weekly playlist, go to Spotify.com slash Discover Weekly now. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, yelling the great game now. It's Andy Greenwald. I don't think people appreciate how <laughs> how much you've been just cocking back the hammer to unleash that voice. Peter Dinklage like, is not Scottish. No, but, but there was a moment. And there was a moment when we were filming the uh, the, the the finale of, of our TV show after the Thrones when we were gathered all around a, a giant pinball machine, which is normal. That's just kind of how we how we would roll on Fridays. <laughs> when I believe, so was there a Dinklage voice saying something like that in the pinball game? No, that got this it was just that I think I just said you're in the great game now <laughs> so many times. You did in various permutations over the last three months, and, and especially on that last day of shooting after the Thrones. Which incidentally. Thanks everybody for watching. That was really. Oh, we're gonna get to that. I, I'm gonna. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna address. Oh, you, have, you, have, you have your thank you. Your your Lin Manuel Miranda sonnet to read. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I just kept saying it, and then it just started creeping in the the kind of Sean Connery Hunt for Red October Scottish Russian thing started happening. Yeah, and I went with it, man. I did. I I explored that character. You did. I mean, I, I I think I just need to come in and editorialize a little bit when you say that you were you just tried it so many times and so many permutations. No, no one was in, inviting you to per se. Like you, this was sort of a, <laughs> was, a self-generated. It was not a requirement. No. Yeah, and it wasn't like it, it wasn't like it was a request. But this is like what you brought to the party, and we were we were enjoying it. Yes. It was it was a good time, and you know it was uh, you were letting off a little steam. And I think people like accent work. I think that's mostly what we were going to talk about today. Was was accent work? Yes. Um, it turns out, I think that like doing a Jon Snow voice, which is an accent for Kit Harington too, to be fair, right? He's, he is performing an accent just as much as, as Peter Dinklage is. That voice is easier to do, I think, than Tyrion's voice. Would you agree with that? Yes, because cause, cause Tyrion does like a weird, like hybrid American <laughs> British theater actor kind of thing. <laughs> Because Peter Dinklage is an American theater Yeah, actor. right? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, but I was saying more like if you were going to be imitating one or even performing one and putting on an accent, like Jon Snow just sort of has a broody, you know, ride south, you know, like that kind of like real low yeah. kind of thing. Where if you're Tyrion, you're just basically <laughs> doing like... south. <laughs> you're too, that was terrible. But you're doing backflips basically all the time. And that's, that's a tricky, yeah. it's trickier, higher yeah. level of difficulty. Sure is. Uh, so, Andy, we've come to that's the a, end. And then we Chris, came to the that, end of that, Game that, of Thrones. That's all I got. I'll talk to you next week. Okay, buddy. That's it. That's the thing is that this expectation that now we have something else to talk about is it's crushing. It's so to, to be fair, we have we do have a lot of stuff coming up. We are excited no, we to um, talk about a bunch of different TV shows, a bunch of different contenders for the completely arbitrary championship belt that we invented a few months ago and have only revisited twice. Obviously, Game of Thrones has held it for the last uh, ten weeks, and and we're ready to bring on some contenders soon. And we'll talk some today, and we'll talk some Thursday. But we got to wrap up Thrones a little bit more. We just, just got to squeeze a little, little bit more out of the weirwood tree, a little more sap out of it, right? Yeah, there's still pieces of fray pie to dig into. Uh, so we came to the end of this season six, and I, you know, there's there's always going to be debate about the way the Game of Thrones seasons are structured, and I think yeah. that inevitably as seasons go on and as shows go on there's going to be I, I wouldn't say lulls like oh this is unacceptable but there's like lulls of 
action, you know, and and there are a lot of scenes of moving the pieces from one side to the other. To be clear, and you're then, saying lulls, L-U-L-L-S, not L-O-L-Z. There's just lulls. There's just That's... straight lulls, yeah. When when Ian McShane is in, it's, it's just nothing but LMFAO. But um, I do think that it's it's worth saying. I mean, like, they ended this season with two pretty huge uppercuts. Yeah. In, I mean, in episodes nine and ten. And it it was it was we we ended, you know, you, you get to the end of nine and you expect maybe a come down episode in ten, a, a scene setter for the next season, something a little bit more contemplative. And they uh, they did not do that. No. And I think, you know, we were we were absolutely expecting that. And I think I, I don't know where you stand on this. I feel that nine from a purely technical and adrenaline standpoint was probably the most amazing thing they've pulled off. But I think that 10 was probably the best episode of the series to date. But I say that with the caveat that you couldn't have made that episode in season one, two or three or four, because obviously the first 20 minute set piece um, when Cersei burns it all down is absolutely riveting filmmaking and it's exceptional work by everyone involved but everything else that was so gripping and entertaining and you know the hits kept coming even after those first 20 minutes that's because things were paying off things that had been set in motion one two three four five years ago and that's the reward of investing this much time in something this expansive and and frankly something this expensive Um, and i think they think it was the best episode they've ever done yeah i think it's in the it's in the conversation i i I think that it's hard to say because I've started watching the show differently over the last two years than I did the first few years. Oh, oh really? So, Why? What's different? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it more because I think that Red Wedding was... Uh, I don't remember what else happens in Reigns of Castamere. I just right. remember my my expression of shock at the end of that episode. Um with this with this final episode with with Winds of Winter I thought the the real key to this episode was the fact that no longer were scenes happening in um in a vacuum and that right. even artistically scenes were transitioning and talking to one another in a way where they didn't you didn't need to say like well thematically this is all about this no i mean the Littlefinger conversation went rec- directly into the Benjamin showing Bran that went back to the John. I mean, it was just every scene sort of turned over into the next one in a way that felt, quite frankly, like much more cinematic than television. I agree. I think the the thing, the, the risk that, that Game of Thrones runs, and let me preface this statement by saying that there actually is no risk. It's hugely profitable and successful for everyone involved. But... They raise the stakes with these amazing set piece episodes and these amazing payoffs and in this case literal explosions that it does spoil the audience, you know, to expect that that's something that can happen all the time. And it can't for two reasons. One is narratively it can't happen because you have to do build up and you have to set up these things in order for them to work on a level other than just shock and awe. But it also just doesn't work in terms of production. You know, they simply can't afford it. Even if the budget is the biggest in the history of TV, you can't constantly be doing that. Um, And so... I feel... Now, let me also preface this with another thing. Can I double preface? I want all I, the caveats. All the caveats, my dude. I I realize that because we did our after show, people will not necessarily believe my critical opinions about the show going forward, which is fair enough. I enjoy doing the show. That That's that's a, that's an L I'm willing to take. But Take the L with dignity. Is, <laughs> nothing but dignity. Take the knee. Um, <laughs> I... I think this was the show's best season. And the reason I think that was because okay, let me give you let me give you three reasons. I think I'm gonna give you three reasons. Don't you hate it when you like you set yourself up for a number and you're not sure if you have all the numbers set up? I never understand how people can do that. I, Go ahead. I, I'm gonna prove to you that they can't, <laughs> that they shouldn't. I'm gonna say a number of reasons. Um reason no, I have three. I have three. I figured them out. Thank you for letting me stall. Reason number one was just the majesty of those set pieces in those final two episodes. And in fact I'll add a third, the Hodor sequence. Um, those three alone were just truly exceptional. It'd be hard to imagine three better things on TV this, this season. Um, the other reason is the sheer sense of excitement and momentum that I can't help but think has to do with the fact that Benioff and Weiss have outstripped the books. And obviously they're moving so quickly now. Um, Varys is capable of teleporting through space and time and the ocean really no longer signifies anything at all. The Varys merman shit is getting real. How how else else can you explain his ability to move through sea bodies? 
I, 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 I can't possibly imagine. I just hope he got, um, I hope he got some nautical miles, you know, so we can maybe take another trip after this whole war is done for free up in business class. Um, but the third thing is the quiet moments I thought this year were pretty spectacular. Now, of course, there were episodes that were lulls in comparison to the bigger thing. In this case, I mean L-U-L-L-S. But those, those episodes were also lulls. What I mean is the writing flourished in a lot of ways this year in a lot of the quieter scenes. You know, I, I feel like the people who were complaining about episodes seven and eight will point to like the, the Tyrion drinking game scenes. When I found those to be some of the most charming and enjoyable and best written scenes of the year. Now, do they seem like they're from a different show than the one that did the 20-minute Godfather montage that ended with the destruction of an entire swath of a city and 12 main characters? Sure. But the show contains multitudes, and I like right. that stuff. And I does it, funny. and I, I, I don't know, but I get the impression, like, the some of the senses, like, the sensibilities, some of, like, the, his sense of humor, maybe Benioff and Weiss's sense of humor, is slightly different than Martin's. <laughs> Do you think? Now, we're maybe saying this because we just came off of a, a, a Friday on set when our maester, Jason Concepcion, spent, I would say, as much time as you spent saying, you're in the great game now, son, <laughs> doing his, his George R. R. Martin imitation and talking about how all the characters have certain amounts of moon blood. Yeah. Um, uh, well, not all the characters. Um... <laughs> listen, we don't know. I haven't read the books. <laughs> you know, it's possible. <laughs> but... It yeah. does suggest a slightly different sensibility, yes, and one that plays better on TV and one that maybe plays better um, to a general audience. So I, I, I enjoyed those scenes. Would you be... Uh, so there's been... I, I think that they, they've... Have they confirmed... They've confirmed that the season is coming... They're coming back next season. Big surprise. And then yeah. there has been discussion about how their vision for the end of the series is to do truncated seasons... Yes. The next two years, right? Like the Breaking yeah. Bad style. Yes. Is this show ending too soon or not fast enough? Well, I mean, the, the fact that we're even asking that question is a sign that somebody's somebody's winning, right? I mean, the, the, it's generally pretty clear when one way or another. Um, you know, Breaking Bad obviously ended at the absolute apex of its popularity, but I don't think even the most ardent fan at any point in those last two seasons would have looked at the, the chessboard and been like oh no we can stretch three more years out of this uh it was built to end in a certain amount of time i think that i think that they've made the pivot now they've made the turn you know towards the finish line in a way that now the stories that are left to tell are the only stories left to tell but that of course being said this world is enormous and had they changed things up and decided to run six more years a year ago they probably could have done that by seeding more characters, you know, taking harvesting more from the books, um, really leaning into the Moonblood thing and just giving people like Jason what they want. Well, that will be the interesting meta narrative going on or the, the narrative outside of the actual show is if the book comes out, say, next before mm -hmm. next April. How far ahead of the, you know, will the book outpace the show? Will we then go back into a world in which the end of the show or the next season of the show is mapped out in another text and we get back into that same old tension? I, I think that at this point, they're such distinct entities and, and our book readers and friends, Jason and Mallory, have just a terrific, it's like the Magna Carta of nerddom up oh on the reader today um, talking about things like this, but in, in relation to the books and how what an epic troll move it was to name the season finale winds of winter which is the name of the book that still has what would come you out. have named it i mean they named it otherwise um <laughs> uh you know lit up i mean what would you what would you call it it's, um i'm not the father boom? that's good i don't know i'm not the, not the father um but the the, the vibe i get based on nothing other than the fact that, as you know, I'm terrific at picking up vibe. That's just, like, always what I do. Just walk into a room, I'm like, get the vibe here. I figured it out. Um, it seems like Martin is really in a vise of his own making here because he seems adamant in whether it's fueled by peak or frustration or resentment or, or, or whatever it is, he seems pretty adamant that the, the two roads have diverged and they're not really going to cross over much anymore in terms of the narrative he wants to tell. The thing that that, that I think has got to be very daunting is it does seem like he gave them a lot of his best material before he stopped participating in the show. And the real bind would be if he now feels the need to better yeah. what they've done right. on the show. 
which probably ends up meaning he making it more complicated, which honestly probably isn't better. You know, and I think we may have said this on the re-up last week, but the number one example of that for me is this thing with like this character of Cold Hands who helps Bran in the books, and Jason and Mallory explain this to us. All the readers are like, well, that's Benjen. It has to be. Benjen is a thing. Benjen's coming back. And then, and, then he, and then apparently Martin says, no, that's not. And of course, it makes and more like, sense. It's just easier right. sometimes. And also, but even, even his... more his... satisfying. But he, right. he actually so, only said no in as much right. as so he, maybe he was wrote just trying something to like, in just, the margin you know, of a book, right? That was like, that's not Benjamin. That, that, that actual... He, maybe he just was trying to obfuscate intentionally because that was just a note to his editor and he didn't want to be boxed in about what he was going to do. But... You know, I, I, it does seem clear, and Mallory writes about this in her piece. She, she's actually, I think, on some level excited to have two-track narratives. You know, the one that, that the, the the very rich, very detailed, moonblood-drenched one on the page, and and the in the TV one, which is the sort of the you know, which just definitely moves as quickly as Varys through the uh, across the the narrow sea. Um, I think I, the, the the two seasons thing. We don't know. I mean, they haven't confirmed anything. We don't know. It just seems to be sort of understood that it will probably last two more seasons and that they want them to be truncated. It's pretty unclear what that conversation is like because the ratings are still so good. Um, I'm sure the network, on the one hand, the network probably wants more episodes than just, I don't know, um, 12 more, 15 more, whatever it ends up being. But at the same time, they're so expensive to make. They also don't want to overstay their welcome. They don't want to destroy Benioff and Weiss and their production team. Um it's kind of, it's interesting. And I, and I also wonder if, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of these AMC shows like Mad Men have split seasons is because then contractually you can call it one season so you don't have to give everyone a raise, you know, and, and you can just film them all as part of quote unquote one season and then stretch it out. So there's a lot of factors at play determining this, but you have to think that in their office, wherever they are in Hollywood, sure. they know what they're doing because it's too, it, there are too many moving pieces for them not to already know, right? I think what I would kind of hope for that just, just, because I think it would be cool as a storytelling device is if is if the the show ends and it, it ends with the way the book ends but if it just kept but the books so sorry if the show had an endpoint mm-hmm. and then the books just kept right. going I mean I don't I don't expect him this is his life's work I mean I I would hope that this isn't coming at the expense of you know the that's that those book of short stories about you know like alice Munro style short stories he wanted mm-hmm. to write but i would hope that martin you know if he has all this history in these books would also have a future and to me sometimes i was you know when we were watching tower of joy last night again i was struck by how simple and wonderful that story would have been to tell as a show the the whole Rhaegar, liana yeah ned battle of the usurper Bat, you know, the War of the Usurper battle of the battle of the Trident stuff would have been awesome to see as a fully played out show. And I wondered whether or not it would be something where he could just keep telling the the future history of this story for as long as he wanted to. It doesn't have to end with someone sitting on an iron throne with the head of the Night King on. And their, we may have pitched this lap. before, but I feel like it's worth pitching again. I mean, I, I think in general, there's no stupider or more overused phrase in Hollywood at the moment than expanded universe, but this world may be one of the very few that is absolutely worthy and deserving of further exploration because i mean as you're saying my god like the entire thousands of years of of history cultural history magical history uh royal history all of these things that exist in this world and that people like mallory and jason seem to know absolutely everything about i, I think it would be an ab- i think it would be a total shock if when hbo announces the end of game of thrones they don't at this concurrently announce a companion series or anthology series or mini series or, you know, something, something, whether it's like the Duncan egg stuff that I've heard people talk about, or, or as you're saying, um, you know, more about the Roberts rebellion or something cast forward and, you know, a thousand years after the events of the show. But the really cool yeah. thing would be if they just basically kept the property, the expanded universe in house, and then let people take shots at it, you know, do it, do an anthology series where you get, I don't know, do do a do a series about the Kingsguard and have Richard Price write it. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. tell, there's there's got to be. I know we saw very little evidence of it, but there has to be a comedy in this world somewhere. You know, there has to be a, a different kind of procedural. We, we we made jokes about the the Bravosi trauma unit, but that it's crazy to say that would actually be entertaining. So all of that is. I think the only comedy could really come from the Croatian extra who flashes his bits at Cersei <laughs> during her shame walk. 
And it ends in tragedy when that guy gets his head smashed by, against by the Danny wall. McBride in the remake. Um, yeah. La, la, last thing to say before we move on um, is as we get closer to the end and the character sheet gets winnowed, and that's a ridiculous thing to say because this character sheet is still the biggest on TV, but. We yeah, are right. down to basically John is the hero, more or less, um, and with all the problems that contains. Because in generally in genre stories, the heroes are less interesting than the villains. And we're, you know, we have we have Euron, who we haven't we only saw twice this year, but I guess figures somewhat in the future. We have the Night King, who is a terrifying villain, but is essentially a CGI force of nature at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And we have Cersei left, and I just think that when you pull back from from you know, fandom of the show and being involved in it week to week, um, how clever Tyrion is, how majestic and cool and, and basically, you know, increasingly unstoppable Daenerys seems and how Jon's storyline is the most Joseph Campbell-y thing we've got in terms of orienting ourselves. The creation and, ma- and maintaining of the character of Cersei might be the show's greatest accomplishment um, because she is playing the role of a villain in some ways, but is such a titanic creation, full stop. And the fact that we completely understand her humanity despite all of these monstrous acts maintaining that across these five or six years to the point where now she's just done her most horrific thing and i feel like a lot of the coverage of this episode um has been i don't want to say sympathetic to her but at least attempting to understand where she came from because there's a very clear path where she came from i think that's that's a very impressive achievement absolutely um any Anything else we have to take care of with Thrones? I, I think I think that's I pretty much it. I did just want to say thanks to everybody for watching our TV show. That was really fun to do. And we didn't really get a chance on screen to thank people like Aisha and AJ and, and everyone else on the crew who helped us do it. Um, it was very, very silly and weird to do a TV show, right? But it was kind of fun in the end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we, we couldn't have done it without Mallory and Jason's expertise, obviously. Andy and I... Uh, Love to have fun with this world, but nobody understands it like those two. Yeah, it's it's a little worrisome how much they understand it. Like there were moments when we, I mean, we generally didn't <laughs> cut because we just went all, we you know, we would go straight through when we were filming. But this week when they were, was it this? It was this week, right? When you were like making fun of a potential character's name, and they were like, "Oh no, it was actually, uh, it was actually Marvin. It wasn't Martin, or whatever." And then they just went like into d- yeah. deep Dornish dive. That is, yeah, that is wild. And then they can also keep NBA and MLB stats in their head at the same time. It's it's pretty impressive. They're 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 both little. So when are we? Uh, So when should we announce after ballers? Should we announce that now? (laughs) Free ballers. Uh, I feel like that's a better. Maybe we should just do that on Facebook Live. I mean, so far no one has. Yeah, then no one has responded. No one's asked. No one has responded to the pitch that I actually gave to our HBO executive, which was just let us do vinyl season two. Um, Oh yeah. Just turn on Periscope and let us do it with all the snow that was on our set, right? And I, I have to say. You know, if, if we're just doing a little airing of grievances, you know, when I watched The Night Of, which is this amazing show that we're going to talk about, before it, they ran an ad where they were like, your old favorite shows, and it was like Deadwood. And they were like, your new favorite shows, returning shows, ballers, your new favorite shows, vice principals. I kind of wanted there to be a fourth square where it was like, and other shows, and you like waving a sword at me. <laughs> I kind of thought, that, and then it would just be like, yeah, not really. And then it would go back to the other three shows. <laughs> Yeah, they really they, fucked up. Can we say that now? We can. They totally did. They, they really <laughs> caught an L on that one. Let's take a quick break to talk about Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. I personally really love going home and knowing that everything I need to make a fresh, healthy meal is waiting for me already. It cuts out the whole rigmarole of going to the supermarket standing online oh they don't have this particular thing is this good is this bad it's just right there in a box you open it you're ready to start chopping you're ready to get cooking for less than ten dollars a meal blue apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals blue apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients you make incredible meals so they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers family-run farms fisheries and ranchers whether it's japanese ramen noodles wild-caught Alaskan salmon or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. In July, eat meals like creamy shrimp fettuccine with sauteed green beans and spinach or sweet chili chicken with Tinkerbell peppers, green beans, and jasmine rice. Or my favorite, the spiced steak and tomato avocado salad with creamy cone cabbage and red onion slaw. 
Check out this week's menu to get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash the watch. That's blueapron.com slash T-H-E-W-A-T-C-H. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash the watch. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also want to tell you a little bit about books. Rule number one of Mandom is no matter what you do around the house, you are likely to screw it up. I can help you smooth out pretty much anything, though, and I'm here to tell you how to do it with flowers. You just send flowers from thebooks.com. No woman in her right mind would turn away a peace offering of Books flowers. Books flowers are grown at eco-friendly farms on the side of a volcano. Seriously, a volcano. Blooms are larger, the colors are more vibrant, and it's better soil and more sun at a lofty 10,000 feet kind of thing. Yep, gorgeous flowers from thebooks.com. Hand-delivered to your girl, and you say, we're still good, right? And apologies don't cost much at all at thebooks.com because books prices start at a mere 40 bucks and there are no upcharges and no extra fees. Even delivery is absolutely free when you register with the books. Listeners to our show save 20% off the bouquet of your choice. Just go to books.com and enter promo code BSPN. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code BSPN, books.com, promo code BSPN. Um, speaking of the night of, yes, we wanted to give people a little bit of a of, of a head start with this one because HBO's put up this new film, or sorry, this the first episode of a new limited mm-hmm. series uh, early. So the the actual premiere date for the night of is July 10th, and it has already been released on HBO Go. And I think Andy and I both very 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 highly recommend it. Um, it's directed by Steve Zalian and written by Richard Price, which is one of I think me and Andy's safe to say favorite authors combined you know i think i might like his novels more than you but you still like them quite a bit and i i I like his screenwriting too which i think is a little bit underrated and and always interesting yeah worked on worked on seasons of the wire uh wrote um the screenplay for clocker money too or am i crazy he wrote color of money which is one of my i think is actually the underrated like top three scorsese movie um and he wrote Sea of Love with Al Pacino and the lovely Ellen Barkin from Animal yes. Kingdom. <laughs> uh, the Night Of uh, stars Riz Ahmed from uh, Nightcrawler, you will remember him from. And he plays the son of a New York City cab driver. He goes out one night to go to a party. I'm just, I'm just setting the bare bones of the plot here. Goes out one night to go to a party with a friend of his. Uh, he borrows his father's cab to do so. And while he's out, he picks up a young lady. Uh, they have they, they strike a, a connection. Things seem to be going in the right direction, uh, and then everything that could possibly go goes wrong. Could go everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. That, I think that's a good. I think setup. that's a very fair way to phrase it. And I think the other thing to, to know going into this show um, is that it has a kind of an interesting genesis because it was originally it was based on a on a British miniseries called Criminal Justice, and it was the passion project of James Gandolfini. This is what he wanted to do. Yep as his post-Sopranos uh, TV work. Um, and HBO sort of... And he was supposed to play the John Turturro character. He in was going to play a right? sort of a the, yeah, down-on-his-luck, sort of um, basically a bottom-feeding defense attorney who gets caught up in the, the case. Defense attorney, yeah. And he partnered with Steve Zalian to do it, and HBO actually passed on it. And then they reorchestrated it because they had, they had initially pitched it as an ongoing series, maybe with a different case every season or something. And HBO passed on it, and they came back as a miniseries. HBO greenlit it, and then Gandolfini, you know, horribly and sadly died a, a month later. But they kept so they kept the, the project alive. Turturro came on board, um, and this is just it's it's pure class. First of all, it is so engaging from the first moment that the story starts, and I. You know, we always talk about senses of place and real places, and just there's there's an opening shot uh, in in Jackson Heights in Queens, and you are in Jackson Heights in Queens, not just because they filmed it there, but oh, because yeah. they took the time to consider how to frame the shot and where to frame it and who to populate the frame with. And the one thing that Richard Price always brings to everything he does is this almost like musical verisimilitude in terms of police language. Like I don't know if cops actually talk like this, but cops should hope they talk like this because he's so good at communicating it. It's a it's a micro procedural. Well, once once uh, Nas the character the main character is is brought into custody, uh, which is not not a surprise. Um, 
it becomes about the minutia of police work and criminal investigations, but also in it becomes about the minutia of what the emotional toll must be to be someone accused of a crime. Yeah. And it is it's so tightly wound. Uh, it's shot by Robert Ellswit, who's done a bunch of stuff for Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, shot Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible Rogue, Rogue Nation, Nation, but did last year's um, Nightcrawler. It feels basically like they've, it has like a very Zodiac feel from uh, the Fincher film, Zodiac. And the way that Price gets inside of these characters, and it doesn't hurt the fact that they called in every yeah. single good character actor in New York City on their night yeah. off. Like Kevin Dunn, everybody who's in there, um, who's the guy who plays Klein, the desk sergeant? Oh, exactly. I was like, I know that guy. Great to see him there. But who, I, I, who, what that guy's name is, I, I'm blanking on right now. But, but, they're, but the people on the show, um, you mentioned like, yeah, Kevin Dunn from Veep does a similar thing that he did in True Detective, where he just sort of rumples his way through a scene and you're immediately there. And by the way, if it's that easy to get the HBO all-star day players, why can't Kevin Dunn walk through the After the Throne set? Like, can we bring that up, too? Like, if he was just... Seriously. He was just, he was just hanging out in the back, drinking some of that beer we never opened. Um, but Michael K. Williams shows up in it, Max Casella, Paul Sparks, um, plus a whole bunch of other just just that guys who are always the perfect people to play rumpled cops. And last week, we talked about Midnight Special, and I called out Bill Camp. Ben, Shank- ben Shankman is That's right, is that's Klein. Ben Shankman, of course. So, But, but yeah. like, last week, we talked about Midnight Special and Bill Camp, who just has an incredible that guy face in his role in that movie. You're just watching him. Oh, yeah. He plays the investigating uh, detective in this, and he's just tremendous. Of course he's ready to come off the bench, and just someone just needed to pass him the rock to play this part, you know? But he plays a guy named Detective Box, who you get the impression is sort of a, a heavy-hitting, uh, you know, de- a homicide detective in this precinct. And the way that they kind of start to set up the interrogation mm-hmm. scenes reminds me of my um, my favorite episode of Homicide: Life on the mm-hmm. Street, the Araber episode where Andre Brower interrogates the the fruit stand salesman about the murder of a mm-hmm. young girl, and then the entire episode is actually set inside of the interrogation box. But the the obvious like understanding of the dramatic possibilities of an interrogation scene. Uh, it's just I can't wait to watch the rest of this, and I hope people check it out because it is it is really like crime filmmaking and and crime tell- storytelling at, at a pretty high. Can level. Can I just throw in one other thing, which is to say, you know, it's essentially my job to watch television. I found this excruciating to watch, not in a bad way, not in a <laughs> negative way, but especially the first hour, uh, which sets up everything that's that's to come when Nas and, and by the way, Riz Ahmed is star he is tremendous and see him in this now before so you can talk about how good he was in it before he stars in um uh, star wars rogue one and jason like a star wars jason Bourne the film of the summer um right but when you see that the 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 vise clamp down on him and the mistakes that he makes for being trusting or or fearful or scared you know and, and everything that happens to him it's really hard to watch for me i found it just agonizing i I just started texting you because i just i couldn't even look at the screen yeah it's uh it's it's the same sort of feeling that um you get when you're watching making a murderer and and you feel it all kind of tumbling into one bad direction do do you remember when we talked about that great episode of of girls this year um and and i was talking about how like the the, one of the things i loved about it was that it reminded me of the way nights in new york can go sideways in the best possible ways and in ways you never would expect (laughs) yeah this is the worst possible this is the flip side of that this is like if i had seen this episode in 2003 i basically would have moved to the midwest (laughs) because (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Things could go real bad in a hurry, especially if you pick up um, magic Molly eating dream girls. So I know that we will keep talking about the night of as the episodes become available to people. Um, and I think what we're going to do is do a reup this week where we concentrate entirely on preacher. Is there anything else that you have been messing with before well, we go? television what i want to ask you just to sort of to revisit this championship belt idea because we're going to consider preacher for it i'm excited to catch up on it um i'm going to look at roadies because i feel like we have to in this like in the same way like if you loved like if you if you loved a car and the car crashed you have to like pay the respect to the car by looking at the car and like seeing what happened to it i feel like that's how i feel about cameron crowe's career and probably roadies which i haven't watched yet but i will 
Um, but I'm not optimistic. I've been putting it off, even though it has a Lindsay Buckingham cameo, which is almost enough to get me on board. Um, but I feel like we should revisit that idea because, you know, we, we're coming off of a time when Game of Thrones basically always is going to hold the belt for the quarter that it's on. We said initially that there's going to be a different belt holder for the four seasons, more or less, of the year. Um, Game of Thrones is always going to win spring as long as it's on. I think it's be impossible otherwise. We didn't see People versus OJ coming, um, both as the in terms of quality or in terms of the way it grabbed people's attention in the first part of the year. So I'm wondering, obviously the heavy favorite for the summer season, um, as evidenced by the one billion Twitter responses I got when I even suggested it being a conversation, is Mr. Robot, which comes back on July 13th. But is it possible for something else to hold the belt is the first question. Second question is... yeah. What sure, would, we made it up. We yo, made up the rules. Okay, yeah. But yeah, come on, play along. Is it possible <laughs> okay. for something like Night of to hold the belt? In, in my feeling is it it's almost impossible unless it grabs people's attention, like making a murder or people versus OJ. Because so it's almost like you're pers- propo- proposing that there should be like a shadow, an intercontinental <laughs> belt, yeah. Or shadow, shadow like cabinet? Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Yeah, that worked out um, great, by the way. No, but like an intercontinental belt that. That is for stuff that's not getting watched, but is good. So I guess that we could call that the Americans. <laughs> Thanks, belt, buddy. Right? Yeah, or the Rectify Crown or something. Yeah, like there's shows that are just always good, but they can't hold the belt because of the arbitrary. I think that rules one of the did. things that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the year, probably for as long as you and I are doing this podcast, is whether or not Game of Thrones is going to be the last of those shows. I mean, we have this uh, series up on the Ringer this week called The mm-hmm. Undeniables, which is basically searching for things. In a world where there is no more monoculture and where there is so much, everything is niche, everything is appealing to like small but passionate, acknowledges as good. And Game of Thrones, which has its detractors, it just has a momentum now that I think is undeniable. But is it going to be the last of that kind of show? I mean, are we ever going to have a show like this where pretty much across the board, people are like, I mess with this show? I think... I mean, I, I've, I've long felt that Game of Thrones is the last consensus show um, in terms of the big picture, because it's not just that people think it's good or that they get pleasure out of it. It is the feeling that everyone is watching it and you're missing out if you're not. I think People vs. OJ came on pretty strong. Now, obviously, the ratings are not even remotely comparable, but the way it entered into the cultural conversation was pretty striking. And the way people who didn't watch the first episode were basically shame-billed into catching up um, was interesting. So I, I think that the, the the probable answer to that question is, I don't know if we will have another TV series like Game of Thrones, but we might have a continuing series of TV events. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about just... that, too. I was thinking about if it, it, they, they started casting out Black Mirror, and I know Mackenzie Davis from Hall and Catch Fire is going to be in it, but if they had Queen. sort of kept the ball rolling from where they were with the Christmas special, and if you got Robert Downey Jr. in Black Mirror or something Mm -hmm. for an episode how that could become sort of an event television because of the the topic it's got a mystery it's got something to talk about it's got things that people would want to have the theory about but if you were able to imbue that with star power i i agree with that i think the one thing the one counter is that i don't think anything on a streaming service can have the belt not because of quality but because of the delivery system because you know, Black Mirror, which is one of our favorite shows, um, definitely check it out. I think the episodes are on Netflix. The, the original British episodes are on Netflix now. Um, and I, I wrote a big piece about it for Grantland back in the day, if, if you're just hearing about it for the first time now. But the new... Se- so then Netflix basically hired the creator, Charlie Brooker, who's probably a genius, to make 12 more episodes, which might be crazy, considering he'd only made seven total prior to that right. over a number of years. But the, the thing is, is that Netflix is going to make these 12 episodes, and I bet they're going to be... You know, I bet... A third of them are going to be astonishing. Another third are going to be, um, you know, scandalous. And another third will be whatever. But they're all going to appear at the same time. So there there won't be that sustained feeling of, of elation and discovery and, and word of mouth that I think is key to, to having the belt. So th- because, and, and I think one of the reasons why we created the belt was because we missed that feeling. And we and not just because, you know, it helps us with a weekly podcast, but that feeling of, of being invested in something the feeling that you described when you said, I can't wait to watch the rest of the night of. I mean, that's what we really, really love yeah, about, yeah. about and maybe And maybe that's all you can ask for at this point. I mean, I think that there's also a way to think about the belt on a week-to-week basis that gets granular about episodes. But since episodes yeah. are 
being digested in so many different ways now, it's almost impossible. You could do that when it was when Lost and or, or Breaking Bad or Mad Men were on and these things were parceled out over a, a several month period of time. But now I just feel like I, I you know, I know from from the small sample size of my my own house that my wife thinks Orange is the New Black is incredible this season. I just haven't had a chance to watch it. And I, even but even she I is having the problem of not looking at conversation about Orange is the New Black because she's only just now finishing the season. You know what I mean? And we haven't even talked about it. We haven't talked about Unreal. We haven't talked about a lot of stuff that's been on the, out there. And if you are talking about it on a granular level, like with moments, then, you know, this fall, or maybe I think it got pushed to January, actually. But like, but when Homeland comes back, we're going to want to talk about that first episode because we're going to want to know if it's, you know, if it's fascinating or a tire fire, you know, and that, that conversation can suck up a lot of oxygen and be interesting. Um, I think we found in this last season, even though we were both more or less back on board with it as an entertainment, I don't think it necessarily justified or sustained the conversation for its entire run. Right. Um, you know, it, similarly, um, yeah, I, I, you know, what, I'll be curious, you know, what I'll be curious to see about when it comes back is the reaction to, to Fargo season three, because the second season, I, you know, I think was, I'm not alone in saying, I think was amazing. And I think a lot of people now feel that and they feel it, but the, the, the discussion about it seems to sound like everyone felt that way right away that this was brilliant when I don't know if that's how it played out week to week, it was more cumulative. So the expectation game for the show might now have finally surpassed the, the relatively, you know, not modest, but the the non Game of Thronesy week to week numbers, so that'll be kind of an event when that comes back. That'll be interesting to see. Right. But again, that's not even coming back this year. Right. Um, I think all of this, by the way, on our parts, is a very elegant and hopefully successful way to distract people from the fact that this podcast is just going to become a vice principals podcast <laughs> in like two weeks. Right. Yes. Like when I, we change I, it to I, I let really the boy watch pod. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Like we're acting like. You know, we're, we're acting like we're casting around for stuff to talk about with Thrones Gone, but you have to understand that there is a new Danny McBride TV show premiering soon and a Jason Bourne movie. And, and Walton Goggins like, is in that Danny McBride TV show. Exactly. Like, they, there's an argument to be made that during July, you and I will basically just be doing a Jerry Lewis telethon of podcast, and then Tate can just turn on the microphone when he wants to or not, because this is, this is as good What's as it gets. The, what are we doing a podcast in benefit of? I, well... You know, I think people have been asking that for a while. But, you know, a for number Ashley of charities. For BMW. You know? <laughs> exactly. A number of charities. We like to move the money around. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't want to commit to anything now, but, you know, we're, we're going to do very good charity. The very best charity. Only the best. Chris, did you, um, did you have any thoughts on, you know, The Ringer and our, it's a website that I believe, I believe you're involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, did a bunch of stuff last week, some really good stuff for the 20th anniversary of Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt. Um, and our friend Sean Fantasy wrote a really good piece about that. And then almost as if he's aware of the chatter about him, our friend Sean Car- Carter released a song um, last night, DJ Khaled in Future. He's, he's a Do part of us. I, I think the- that's part of the, the thing right now is that Jay has been part of things, you know, but he hasn't really done something in a while. We know that he's paying attention to the internet because he learned about memes. So yeah, that's good. That's right. So maybe he set up a Google alert. <laughs> like when he did the Abe Simpson he... meme on the uh, on the Drake song. <laughs> and he just well, went, came in Dan the door, Daniel, took his we... hat, and went back out. <laughs> his, 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 his golfer hat. Um, it's, I got, you know, we, I know we've talked about this a little bit. I don't, I don't think this, this, this song is that good. But I was, here, here's, here's the thing that I was going to say about Jay-Z, just... The, the 20th anniversary of that record. Well, let me ask you. Can I ask you a question? Oh, oh, God, I love it. What's peak Jay-Z to you? Oh, see, okay. Well, that's sort of the question I was going to answer before you asked it. Because I was going to say, interestingly, you know, we, we, we live in a cycle of hype now where generally, and it's actually existed before the, now, but very often rappers' first albums are considered their masterpieces. Because like, you know, in the same way with writers, like you have your whole life to work on your debut and then you have to do the second one in eight months. Yes. Um I didn't, I wasn't that, A Reasonable Doubt is an amazing album, but I will not pretend I was up on it when it came out. I liked it for the Biggie track, because that's, that's who I liked. Right. And Jay-Z already has a completely unique career, but maybe the most unique thing about it is that his career followed maybe more of a rock template, which is he's kind of counting on now that he becomes a classic rock, you know, touring act. But he kind of peaked 
you know, three, four, five albums in. Is that fair to say? I mean, I'll I'll look at the discography and give you a real answer. When, you when know, you, you have that, you have to have a favorite. I do have a favorite. I was, but I was specifically talking about the fact that for as much as reasonable, it's the 20th anniversary of Reasonable Doubt, which is a classic record. I don't consider that his classic record, other right. than the fact that it introduced an artist who would dominate a lot of categories for a long time. Peak Jay Z is Black Album. That's the answer. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know we were getting there. I was just trying to milk it, man, but because Vice Principles think, isn't on yet. I think that Volume 3 is still... <sighs> volume 3 is the second, and it's and it, I, I go back and forth. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. All right. Okay, that's interesting to me. Has anyone ever sounded better over a rap beat than Jay-Z on So Ghetto? No. But I also think I think Volume Three is the, is maybe the most interesting of his records because it's so there's so it's so dense and there's yeah, so many different so styles many different and styles different producers played, yeah um, and so many tracks that you sort of forget are on there but I really 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 do love the Blueprint um, maybe also because of you know of, of when it came out and the effect that it had just on his career on the world and how much time we you and I spent listening to that record among others but and the fact that it was basically all just Blaze and Kanye beats but. <laughs> Where do you think critical opinion has landed on the Black Album? Because that album was top to bottom a stunt, but Jesus Christ, was it a successful stunt, right? He was going to do one track with all these producers that mattered to him, and he was going to retire forever. I don't know where critical um, opinion is on it. I mean, I think it it's his best collection of songs. It's the best collection of songs that speak to one another. You know, the, the first song, my first song yeah. in December 4th, talking to one another. Um, yeah. I think that, it's it's impossible to walk away. I mean, he, he he made the best final statement you can possibly make, and he made it way too early in his life. Yeah, I mean, did did he know? I mean, was this all because he is generally smarter than most musicians? Did do you, was he celebrating the fact that he was was he self aware enough to know that just because of his age and and the way the culture worked that it would be very very hard for him to stay on top. On top, but stay on top, having climbed up and battled his way up. You know what I mean? To continue to defend his turf, because I'm picturing his the first ten years of his career like like Jon Snow and Battle of the Bastards, right? Right. Um, you can't stay up there forever. So he basically drove his sword into everybody's throat and then jumped off. And then everything he's done since has been from a different place. I think that leaving rap had a lot. Not leaving rap because I, I don't feel like it was ever like a very definitive exit. I, I wonder whether or not he was somebody. He's so savvy. Maybe he had even a grasp of of his gifts and like what he had left to say, you know, and that he knew that he could continue to put out stuff like Kingdom Come or Magna Carta or or whatever. But it was eventually, but it was ultimately like all the important stuff has to go in one notebook, you know. Yeah, that's probably true. And he, although not, he famously never used a notebook, but. I exactly. think the thing that's been interesting yeah. about these last few appearances, and we've talked about him a couple times in the last few weeks, and we jumped on um, uh, All the Way Up remix, the Fat Joe remix, and he's on this this track, and he, he briefly was on the Drake album. Um, the, thing that, the thing that was so amazing about him, especially, and this is what Volume 3 showcases better than anyone, is just how nimble he was and flexible and could basically do anyone's style or be himself over any kind of beat. I mean, Big Pimpin', like, I don't know if anyone other than the extended, you know, the Shea Serrano family knew about UGK. People who really, really loved rap and lived in the South knew about UGK, but in terms of on a national audience, and then he just like brought them on and he let Bun B basically body him on that track too, yeah. out of respect. But the point being is that he was that, he was, he was that gifted. And the thing that's interesting about these most recent, these most recent appearances is that the voice is still good and I'm excited to, to hear him, but it kind of reminds me a little, this is a terribly dramatic comp. But it's like watching Ryan Howard trying to hit fastballs. He just the bat speed is just slow enough that he's missing them when he used to hit them. Yeah, like he, he, right. He, he's still being creative and he's still trying to match what he does to these various beats. And he's you know he's with Future on this track. So what's Jay Z's Achilles just, heel not, injury then? Just getting older. Working. That would be the dude. That would be the darkest place ever to end a podcast if we were basically like <laughs> getting older is the equivalent of having the St. Louis Cardinals blow out your Achilles heel and then they celebrate <laughs> in your home turf. That is just great is job, Ransky. <laughs> we think we have the best. We have the best record in baseball, and then that happens. 
Um, well, if people want to hear no, more about Jay, I do recommend that they check out Sean and Justin Charity and Donnie Kwok did a really good podcast about it on, on Thursday. So they should definitely peep that. Yeah, much more expansive than we did. And, and I would say um, the one thing that he had left to do, I guess, after retiring was to, to be a pop act. And, he, and, when, and when Empire State of Mind went to number one, he accomplished that. Yeah. Um, but so what was, the, what was the Achilles heel? I mean, other than getting older, I don't... I, that, that really may have been it. I mean, he, he rose to the occasion on Watch the Throne, and there's great stuff on there. But that may have been the... I mean, maybe that's it. what he not, needs not, is like one really great collaborator, you know? And I don't think it's future in DJ Khaled. I mean, I don't think, I'm sorry to go out on a limb there. <laughs> oh, what a time to be alive! What, what is uh, what 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 does Tate think about Jay Z in 2016? <laughs> it's always good to have the youthful perspective. I love Jay Z. He loves Jay Z. Everybody loves Jay Z, man. And no, nobody's nobody's mad at Jay. Yeah. They just want the best. No, for him. nobody's mad. I don't want him not to rap. It's just been it's just been interesting. I mean, by the way, that's the endorsement that he needs. You were talking about him needing a collaborator. Tate. He needs me on this podcast, being like, "Oh, you? Hey, yeah." Keep keep rapping, keep rapping, pal. Uh, we'll did, be did back. I ever, did I? Did wait? Did we? I'll, I'll let you go. But did we ever talk about on this podcast when I interviewed him for Spin? When I got him, when I got him on the phone, and I was it was to get a secondary quote for a Fallout Boy cover story. <laughs> do, do you remember that? No, I yeah, I remember. I remember your Fallout Boy story. He was that was when he was president of the label, and he was just like. He, he he basically he he was he was so nice and he basically thought this was the stupidest thing he'd ever done on the phone and he played along it, it was great he really he basically was like i went to a i went to the concert at irving plaza with my wife and there were so many kids there and they knew all the words and they really enjoyed listening to the music are you saying <laughs> that like, fallout boy was his achilles heel I'm saying, listening to Jay-Z describe what was literally the Wikipedia definition of rock and roll concert to me as a reason why he thought Fall Out Boy would be the biggest band in the world Yeah, was was memorable. That's what I'm saying. Uh, All right, we're going to do Preacher. I'm going to watch Preacher. All right, man, we'll, we'll be back later this, later this week. We got Preacher, and everybody check out The Night Of. And thank you for watching After the Thrones. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Great job, Baranski! want to just say thank you to our sponsors, books.com. Rule number one of Mandom is no matter what you do around the house, you are likely to screw it up, but I can help you smooth it over pretty quickly. Just send flowers with books.com. Books flowers are grown at eco-friendly farms on the side of a volcano. Yep, a volcano. Blooms are larger, the colors are more vibrant, and books pr- prices start at just 40 bucks. No upcharges, no extra fees, even delivery is absolutely free when you register at the books. Save 20% at books.com with promo code BSPN. The Watch Today was sponsored by Spotify or Discover Weekly. Discover Weekly allows you to lose yourself every week in the thrill of new music discovery. Your Discover Weekly playlist is 30 songs you didn't know you loved yet. You get brand new, unique playlists every Monday, personalized to your taste. You just sit down at your computer, you open up Spotify on a Monday, you're like, ah, I do not know what to listen to to get this week started. Bang, Discover Weekly. All these songs you just get lost in. It's the thrill of new music discovery, and it's right there at your fingertips. Go to Spotify.com slash Discover Weekly now to get your playlist.